If you've heard this podcast before, you know it usually starts like this. Previously, on areas of agreement. Rural areas are wider, older, more religious, less educated. A montage of sound bites from previous episodes. We tend to think more along the lines of self-reliance. There's an opportunity for... Sound bites that catch you up on what you might have missed and help provide context for the present episode. It's usually not hard for me to find sound bites that are relevant, but as I tried doing that for this episode, I came up empty, which I think is telling. The topic is bringing older and younger generations together to bridge divides and solve problems. And I think the reason I struggle to put together my recap sequence is this. The generational divide in the U.S. just isn't talked about a ton. It's definitely not as much a part of public discourse as other divides, like urban-rural, liberal-conservative, and college-educated, non-college-educated. Generational divisions aren't talked about much on the news. A YouTube search turned up a few TED Talks, explainer videos, and this Blink-182 song I never knew existed. But not a whole lot else. I've barely mentioned generational differences in this series, and it's only come up in passing during interviews. But that's about to change. There's a lot to say about generational divisions, and some really interesting work happening by individuals and organizations looking to bring people together across age groups. In this episode, we're talking about my and your generation. Sorry, couldn't resist that one. We've got interviews with four people who are doing intergenerational work and research. To tease those conversations, let's do something a bit different. Coming up on Areas of Agreement. In a world where we are the most age diverse ever and we're structurally, we're the most age segregated, there's just so much we're leaving on the table. Younger people are more likely to be progressive or vote Democratic and older people are more likely to vote Republican or be conservative. Older people are more likely to be white. Younger people, on average, are far more racially and ethnically diverse. Older folks might presume that younger people are snowflakes or are pushing for radical change. And younger people might see older folks as resistant to change and slow. Young people should have empathy for older people because we will become that person. Older people should have empathy for young people because we used to be that person too. People agree across generations that by working together across generations, that America can better solve its problems. There's just so much that younger people can learn from older folks and vice versa. How do we shift from individual needs into like collective action? And what would that kind of technology look like? That's what we're trying to experiment and play around with. To start off, I spoke with two people who have spent a lot of time working with people across generations, thinking about generational divisions and taking action to bridge those divides. Here's an edited version of our conversation, which began with introductions. I'm Eunice Lynn Nichols, and I am the co-CEO of CoGenerate, which was formerly called Encore.org until just this past summer. We're a nonprofit, we're a national, and our whole purpose is to bridge generational divides to co-create a better future. We've been talking about this word co-generation because we think there needs to be more focus on the co-piece, older and younger, not one directional, but coming together 
to co-create the future, to collaborate on some of our most pressing problems, and that by doing it together, we can bridge the divides that are so present in society today. So I'm uh, Cal Halverson. I'm an assistant professor at the Boston College School of Social Work. I'm also a project lead and investigator at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health Center for Work and Wellbeing, and proudly, I am a senior research fellow at CoGenerate. So my research focuses on uh, older workers and older volunteers, particularly those who are self-employed and entrepreneurs, uh, as well as intergenerational initiatives. And in my work with intergenerational initiatives, I work most closely uh, with uh, Eunice and the folks at uh, CoGenerate. We talk a lot in this country about the need to bring people together, you know, to kind of bridge divides, um, geographic divides racial divides, even the college-educated versus non-college-educated divide. Um, in your view, do generational divisions get as much attention as some of those other divisions I just mentioned? We actually are currently living in the most age-diverse time in human history with, in the workplace, often five generations working side by side. A new Stanford Center on Longevity report shows that there is unprecedented age diversity with almost equal numbers of people of every age from birth to 70 and beyond. And so on one hand, uh, we're more generationally mixed than ever before. But at the same time, what we're seeing is that we're also a deeply age segregated nation with really um, few opportunities for generations to connect with one another in daily life. A lot of that due to innovations that were designed for efficiency and effectiveness, um, but it really put young people in um, you know, places of education and schools, middle people in these work environments, and older people often separated out in retirement communities, um, increasingly becoming more socially isolated and alone. So I don't think we often talk about age segregation and the way that that can actually increase polarization, differences in views, um, siloed thinking, siloed behavior. Um, and yet it's really present. And I think in the growing conversations around diversity, equity, inclusion, um, we don't talk enough about the intersectionality with age. Do you have a theory on why it's not discussed as much as the other kind of divisions? Age diversity shifts in terms of an identity shifts with us over time. So sometimes we don't think about it because everybody who's young is getting a little older every day. We're not necessarily as aware of it as a factor. I also think that in particular in American culture, age is often a taboo subject. Uh, there are a lot of reasons for that, including ageism. Um, I also think, though, that because our age is mutable, it means that we can use age as a natural bridge. Um, young people should have empathy for older people because we will become that person. Older people should have empathy for young people because we used to be that person too. So let's define terms. When you're referring to a generational division, what exactly do you mean? Is it a political divide, a cultural divide, uh, maybe some of both? You know, there are political divides. Older adults as I always remind my students too, are an incredibly diverse group of people in and of themselves by race, ethnicity, education, political affiliation, et cetera. And the same is true for, for younger people and, and people at midlife. But you can take some averages, and we do know that younger people are more likely to be progressive or vote Democrat, if you will, um, and older people are more likely to vote Republican or be conservative. Uh, but there's, again, a huge amount of diversity within that. But oftentimes when we take these averages, then it's easy to start pitting one generation against the other. When I've seen so many examples of older people working alongside younger people for social change, whether or not they have the same political values or even if they have differing ones, but they both care about 
their communities. You know, there's also differences by race and ethnicity. We know that older people are more likely to be white. Younger people, on average, are far more racially and ethnically diverse. What these averages do, though, is they sometimes cause us to forget just the huge amount of diversity we have within each generation. There's also research that shows that older adults have been the stalwarts of traditional religious institutions. Um, young people are reshaping what it means. Uh, young people are deeply spiritual, but many of them have walked away from the traditional institutions of religion. That's also creating some segregated spaces for where um, spirituality is being played out in our country. Layer that on top of some of the possible um, political divides and then um, space divides where we're age segregating, where people congregate for learning, um, for community action and all of that. So something you hear a lot about, I think, especially the urban-rural divide is that People in those communities don't necessarily just see each other. There's not a lot of mixing. Um, same thing with you know racial or ethnic groups. It's the, you know they're sort of silos. Is that also the case when we're talking about generations? I mean, is it your sense that um, you know maybe outside of your immediate family <laughs> that people from older and younger generations just don't have that many places to connect with each other? Especially when you're looking at the, the rural-urban divide, we do know that rural areas are older on average. We know that younger people tend to, to move away towards the cities. But the people who remain in the rural areas, they do automatically become more segregated from younger folks as younger folks start to move into the cities. Why is bringing people together across generations important? In a world where we are the most age-diverse ever, and we're structurally, we're the most age-segregated, there's just so much we're leaving on the table by not bringing these assets together. And then when we separate older and younger, things like ageism and polarization increase. And then whether it be an urban-rural divide, a religious divide, a political divide, an economic divide, we're just not talking to each other. So we see generational bridging as the most obvious starting place to get to all these other issues that are more at the forefront of a lot of the conversations that are happening today. The second one is that many of us, and in particular in immigrant communities, indigenous communities, um, still living in a, a construct of extended family, um, whether blood related or just like I grew up with aunties and uncles that weren't related, but they were just part of the, the cultural community that I was part of. Um, how do we lean into those assets as well? So you both collaborated on a report called Cogeneration, Is America Ready to Unleash a Multigenerational Force for Good? And so the question that you were seeking to answer seems to be right there in the title, which is great. What did you find? What were some of the main takeaways? Well, the answer to that title would be yes. Uh, we are ready to do so. And so, you know, some of the key takeaways would be, one, that the people agree across generations that by working together across generations, that America can better solve its problems. So this does seem a little Pollyannish, but it was overwhelming. It's, it's over 96% of the of respondents, of, it was nearly 1,600 respondents across the lifespan agreed with this. Over 90% said that working across generations can help to reduce divisions in our society. We did ask about you know, some of the issue areas that people were interested in, and we looked at it across generations. Mental health uh, and working co-generationally on issues of mental health was really important particularly for younger respondents, Gen Z, Millennials, uh, and Gen X. Uh, but education was important for all respondents, regardless of age. 
Um, the environment or climate change was important for people regardless of generation. In fact, environment, uh, care for the environment was in older generations top five, which we didn't know that that would be the case. The environment was number one for baby boomers and silent generation. That's really impressive. Sometimes the access into that topic comes from a different place. So for young people who are really fighting for um, climate justice, uh, they're looking at this world they're going to live in. Uh, the access point for older adults is legacy. And, um, you know, the, the shame of being the first generation that might uh, be leaving the world undeniably worse off than they found it. And even when we found differences, it's not to say that older people didn't care about mental health. That's not true. There were plenty of people who cared about mental health who were baby boomers and silent generation. It just didn't make it into the top five. And so, you know, one of the key takeaways for me out of this is regardless of generation, you're going to find people who really care about the same issues that you do. The survey also found that the vast majority of people wanted to collaborate with people who were at least 25 years older or younger than them. So it's not just that Gen Z and millennials wanted to team up. But at the same time, a big percentage of people also said they couldn't find opportunities to work with people from other generations. It's one reason that we run an innovation fellowship that is invested in organizations that are bridging divides and bringing generations together in um, a number of ways. We've seen innovations in co-generational housing that would blow your mind. Um, we've become so age segregated in the way we live that if you could have older adults who have a spare bedroom in their home, allow a young person who's struggling to make rent or live, if they could have access to reduce rent, um, they can actually get an education and the older adult can age in place with some additional income and also share what they're learning in that moment. How do you make intergenerational initiatives work for both sides? What are the things that have to be in place? You know, is it more about what the program is, what the topic is, investment from both sides? Like, what have you found to be the sort of variables that need to be there for these initiatives to be meaningful to all sides? On this question of what does it take to to bring generations together, as with so many things, it's both easy and hard. There are things that we can do as individuals. The simplest thing is there are probably older or younger people that are actually right in your community, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your faith institution, um, as you go shopping, going about your daily life, that you're probably literally not seeing. Um, you're just walking by them. We're so attuned to only see those who are like us. How can you make choices to actually go to places and interact in places that, that value age diversity? The other one is really institutional, and that's the one that is more difficult because we are structurally designed to be age segregated. I've encountered co-located programs where um, senior centers and local high schools get together to look at community problems, uh, to study social isolation and loneliness, or to study housing insecurity or food insecurity, and then design projects, service learning projects to go tackle that together. But then you'll find it turns out that if you're in a senior center, you might have access to a food budget that comes from the federal government that says it has to be used only for older people. And so imagine like food is a huge bridger of divides, but now you have food on a table that actually technically young people can't eat. Uh, the same is true for um, programs that are funding young people. I'm not saying that that's a bad thing. We have regulations for good reason. But those regulations were designed assuming an age-segregated space. And so how do we actually look at the structures of funding, of buildings, of habit, and actually start to shift that? I do think that's the responsibility 
of leaders, of government officials, and of the social sector. Do you have any other examples of intergenerational initiatives that have been successful? In Boston, uh, in the Boston region, we have a program called Nesterly that I know is also uh, a, a, a fellow uh, in the, the Gen2Gen Innovation Fellowship uh, through Cogenerate. I have a good friend I met through another fellowship program who was one of the first older adults to open up her house to younger graduate students. And so this provided some additional income, additional uh, socialization. And so this is just one example of how bringing the different generations together in housing can actually have benefit uh, to both generations. I'll give um, a couple other examples. Another one of our innovation fellows runs a program out of University of San Francisco called Dance Generators. So she works with undergraduate students who are actually learning to be dancers, um, but it's she brings in community members, specifically older adults, to participate in her classes, and they co-produce dance productions. I actually just went to one of their performances three weeks ago. There's a lot of innovation happening right now on campuses um, that are bringing older and younger together to shift how education is done, and that puts us on a path to, to breaking down some of the barriers that we've been seeing and talking about today. One other um, category that we've been tracking a lot are um, programs that fight social isolation, loneliness, and divisions by um, bringing older and younger together around really deep, authentic conversation and then friendship. Um, one is uh, based in LA, it's called Sages and Seekers, and uh, intentionally pairs olders and youngers. There's a script for the kinds of conversations that are had. Uh, we just launched an initiative um, and are, are supporting an initiative called Generations Over Dinner. It's a dinner campaign to get as many people of different generations sitting around a dinner table once again with some pre-scripted questions that help you go deep. I think what we've learned there is people just need some light scaffolding to dig into um, territory they haven't been in before. I asked Eunice and Cal what they consider success to be for these types of initiatives. How do they know they're working? Eunice says she's confident people who participate get value out of their experiences. They learn from one another, they feel a sense of belonging, and generally feel more empathy for other generations. But I think that um, we need more research that shows that then when they go out and actually do the thing that they're doing together, that the impact on the community will actually be greater, that there are tangible benefits. I've seen the evidence of it, but I think we need to actually be more systematic in looking at that impact. One of my biggest hopes is that, that this leads to even greater social change, both through reduced age bias and age discrimination, or intergenerational cohesion, as well as for whatever the organization or the cause is actually trying to solve, whether it's the climate crisis or educational inequality or whatnot, up next, a conversation about how generational collaboration is part of Urban Rural Action's mission, and how a new organization is trying to rebuild intergenerational trust by building a new type of neighborhood network. Hey, Deborah, nice to meet you. Yeah, nice to meet you too. How are you doing today? That's Deborah Tien, one of the founders of Common Agency, an organization that's trying to strengthen democracy at the local level. Deborah is also Urban Rural Action's senior advisor and an executive team member. We were joined in conversation by UR Action Executive Director Joe Bubman. And as one does when talking about generations, we started with an age check. Are we the same or different generations? I don't even know. 
Well, I, I identify as a millennial because I was born in okay. 81. I think Ellie and I were born in the same year, probably. Yeah, Joe, I think we're both elder millennials. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so. so we're not intergenerational, unfortunately. So, <laughs> that's so not intergenerational, but that's not a deal breaker. We continued and I asked Deborah how she got interested in intergenerational work. So growing up, I don't think I had a ton of intergenerational relationships um, that were not very kind of hierarchical or power structured. And it didn't strike me as that weird. It it always seemed like normal just to make friends with similar aged peers um, because that's how school is structured and different activities, et cetera. And then I lived abroad. So I lived in Tanzania for about five years. And over there, being intergenerational is sort of the norm. So, for example, like when we would see an elder, like we would literally sometimes say like, oh, which literally means like the old person. Um, But you talk to them, you say, hello, you know, like you literally call them an old person, which I think in the U.S. would just come across as very bizarre um, and like a little rude, per se. And that's just something that I became more used to is like, okay, we can acknowledge difference very directly and openly, um, but we don't need it to like define us as who we are as humans. So that kind of got me interested in, okay, what if we start doing that more deliberately in other spaces too, especially in the US? So how could I bring what I was learning over there back to the US? Because I did see over there, like community felt, it felt very different. Interesting. And Joe, how is intergenerational collaboration a central part of the work that Urban Rural Action does? So it's central in in a few different ways. One is that we are trying to work across a number of different lines of division in our country because we're focused on repairing our social fabric and we're focused on building relationships so that we can solve problems better together. And while generational differences aren't as vivid and discussed as much as, say, ideological and racial divisions, I think they still exist. And there's data that suggests that we spend more and more time these days with people who are similar to us, including similar age. And we don't have the sorts of experiences that Deborah was just describing. We think there are meaningful relationships to build with people who are different ages, different perspectives, different lived experiences, but also because we think that the problems in our country, whether we're talking about criminal justice issues or educational issues or economic issues, are too big for a single generation to solve. And we need to be working across um, different age groups. Deborah and Joe met through CoGenerate as part of the Gen to Gen Fellowship Program. The fellowship brought together leaders of organizations that do intergenerational work in some form. Fellows got together monthly on Zoom to build relationships and address challenges. At one retreat, they did a brainstorming session. The question, what are the negative assumptions that younger generations make about older generations? And vice versa. So some of those examples were that older folks might presume that younger people are snowflakes or are pushing for radical change. And younger people might see older folks as resistant to change and slow and uh, committed to maintaining the status quo. And I, I think those are unhelpful in their own right, right? When we stereotype as opposed to generalize. Um, I think if we assume that people have these unattractive, negative attributes, then we're less likely to have empathy for them, less likely to respect them, less likely to engage them in dialogue because we've written them off. And I think that makes it a lot harder to 
strengthen our social fabric. And in fact, our, our fabric is deteriorating. Secondly, I think it manifests itself in strong differences on social and environmental issues. There's a lot of, I think, blame and scapegoating that younger people might um, direct at older folks because that generation um, has, through our economic system and industrialization and just ways of living, have obviously um, contributed disproportionately to a lot of the negative dynamics that our planet is currently struggling with. Um, but that's not to say that there aren't many older folks who are part of the solution, want to be part of the solution, could be part of the solution. And so, again, I think that intergenerational dynamic, um, some of the challenges there can get in the way of problem solving on issues that really require the involvement of everyone in our society. Uh, and just to add on to what Joe's shared, one thing that really struck me that was special about this particular fellowship was actually the intergenerational part of it. It was quite a broad range of people in their 20s all the way to their 80s, and a lot of us, of course, in between. It was quite special to occupy this space and just to see how all of us are also looking at how do we make change? Like, what does that even look like? To Deborah, change looks like local neighborhoods becoming more cohesive, with people from different generations connecting with each other. Broadly speaking, change means rebuilding intergenerational trust. Deborah spent her fellowship year building out Common Agency, an organization that helps neighbors connect through their devices and ultimately face to face. We have this fancy thing, um, these phones that we can use to actually start connecting people a little bit more uh, intentionally. And so what we're trying to experiment with is can we build out these sort of neighborhood networks? these ways of people communicating with each other that looks a little different than maybe what we've seen in traditional social media, where instead of thinking about the amount of screen time we can get someone to engage with it, it's actually more about the amount of time we can get them to spend time in person. The idea is through technology to encourage neighbors to communicate with each other and feel a sense of community. This may all sound a little like Nextdoor or a Facebook group, but Common Agency isn't really the place to share the names of companies that provide good lawn care, and it's definitely not where people come to gossip about neighborhood crime. Deborah has a different kind of mission, one that's written in big, bold letters on Common Agency's website. Connect with your neighborhood over ideas and projects, not just complaints. How do we shift from individual needs into like collective action? And what would that kind of technology look like? That's what we're trying to experiment and play around with. So far, the experiment is being run in two communities, one in New Jersey and one in western Michigan. About 100 people are signed up in those communities. They get one question a week from their neighbor. Questions like, who do you admire in your neighborhood? What are your favorite walks? What board games do you like to play? How do you celebrate the holidays? Or questions meant more as introductions. You know, what brought you here? And like, when did you come here? I'll get to know you kind of questions. We call them gab questions. And that question is received through either their email or their text message. Deborah isn't the one creating the questions. She relies on network stewards, people who are super involved in their community and have been there for a while. We take those answers and we put them on a neighborhood website that only neighbors can log into and see each other's answers. And they can't respond to it directly on the website. They can only just see what the answer is and who said it if the person chooses to not be anonymous. The website serves another function, too. 
you can update your profile. You can use that to actually like connect with another neighbor. Common Agency helps people connect who have similar interests or ideas, with a goal to get small groups working on neighborhood projects together. The hope is that we get towards, where we get towards neighborhoods that feel like they have a sense of solidarity and identity. And in order to get there, I think it involves increasing what we can call collective efficacy, or the ability for the group to make decisions together and take action together. And research shows that that's done through kind of two factors. One is social cohesion, and the second is willingness to act. And within those two, what we look at for social cohesion is like a number of relationships that have been deepened um, through this process. And then in terms of willingness to act, it's number of projects that people do together, number of actions they take together. And so what we're trying to do at Common Agency is give people like opportunities to practice those two factors. Deborah, I want to come back to the idea of local network stewards or block stewards. What else should we know about them? The block stewards are very critical. So the research that I did through the Gen to Gen Fellowship was really building relationships and interviewing block stewards. A lot of them are older. Block stewards are the people who are like throwing block parties, hosting the cleanups, like generally just the people who like know everyone in a town. Sometimes they're known as block captains or maybe um, block mayors, etc., and a lot of them are looking to kind of figure out what to do, like how to make sure that their work kind of continues past them, like wanting to, to rest finally and just not not do all the work. And I've heard many, many stories from older block stewards who are like, you know, I sent out the email to everybody and asking if, you know, if someone volunteer for the block party and no one responds. And so it's like, how do we start addressing that? So at one point uh, we were working on a block party toolkit to make it easier to find block parties specifically, right? What we realized in that process as we were doing interviews is people already have their processes made. Um, They already know how to do this kind of stuff. And it's less about maybe that, but it's more about actually just feeling like they're more connected with their neighbors. Do neighbors even want a block party? (laughs) It's a good question. Joe, I'm curious, as someone who thinks a lot about bringing people together across differences, what are you watching for in these uh, pilot programs? I'm interested to see how the extent to which trust increases across generations, but also across communities and neighbors and and how that trust manifests and, you know, what people see as as contributing to that trust. Is it just spending more time together? Is it doing things together? Is it, as you were asking, Elia, um, contributing to neighborhood betterment um, or is it just, you know, social interaction and dialogue and, and being together in person? You know, Deborah, of course, is really advancing the application of technology for good in our neighborhoods to increase democratic participation and community building. And I'm really interested to see how that works. I think second, you know, Deborah's and common agencies sort of hyper-local focus. Um, I'd like to see, you know, what are the ripple effects of building stronger neighborhoods and stronger communities within just a handful of blocks. Bringing it back to urban rural action, Joe said as a result of the fellowship, He's now committed to advancing intergenerational collaboration and trust in all programs. He said it's usually not too hard to get generational diversity when putting people into groups. And while he doesn't have empirical evidence that intergenerational groups have better experiences or get more done, he's confident that having a mixture of ages is beneficial. Diversity in general makes for better problem solving, right? Diversity of thought, diversity of lived experiences, diversity of worldviews. 
there's just so much that younger people can learn from older folks and vice versa, that more diverse project teams, as opposed to more homogenous teams, tend to, I think, um, accomplish more. And also the people who participate in our programs are looking to engage with people who are different from them. There's a hunger for difference, a curiosity that drives people, motivates them, and compels them to problem solve across differences. I'll have more episodes coming up soon. Thanks for listening.